Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word here in Scripture, that we might know you and through knowing your Son have life eternal. We pray that as we read uh, your word today and reflect upon it together, you might lead us into the truth as you have promised by your Spirit, so that we might know you and we live to your glory. Amen. Well, you've spent uh, what seems like hours searching and searching the counters in the department store for the perfect gift. You're looking for that one item that's going to say absolutely everything you wanted to say. You're important to me. I'm thoroughly devoted to you. Maybe even I love you. So you search through the scarves and the books. You look through the DVDs and the sporting goods, the imported chocolates and the jewellery. What gift is going to adequately express your devotion? I don't know if you've had that sort of dilemma before. For me, it was uh, searching through the crystal and glassware at a fairly upmarket city store looking for just that right gift with just the right amount of extravagance that was uh, going to express my feelings towards a particular girl at her 21st. I was shooting way above my fairly usually cheap level of 21st present. Uh, this wasn't going to be just another inexpensive book or chocolates of fairly dubious quality. It wasn't even going to be my stock standard uh, cheap way out, which was the group gift. You know, just put in 20 bucks and let someone else do all the hard work. No, this time, uh, it was not going to be an ordinary gift. Not from my end anyway. I was determined to give something that would express my devotion. Even though... We did not yet, as yet, have a formal relationship. It was a high-risk strategy, <laughs> made even higher risk by the fact that I turned up two hours late to the 21st and missed all the speeches. Anyway, have you had that sort of dilemma, that sort of experience? What gift will adequately express your devotion? Well, change of scene. It's the beginning of what would prove to be the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus, we read in John chapter 12, has just arrived in Bethany and he's on his way to Jerusalem, which is just a few kilometres away. Now, you've got to understand Jesus is quite a hero in Bethany, indeed in most of the surrounding country. It was here in Bethany, not so long ago, that Jesus had done the impossible. He'd raised Lazarus, a friend of his, from the grave. Now, Lazarus had been dead for four days when Jesus literally called him forth from the tomb with a word. To the absolutely jaw-dropping amazement of the crowds of mourners who were there joining Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, at the graveside. And yet it's this, this astounding miracle that Jesus does that with outrageous irony is actually the sealing of his own death warrant. Because the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, it was at that moment that they decided to take Jesus' life. See that in John chapter 11, verse 53. And so as a result of their scheming, Jesus removes himself from the public eye, having done this astounding miracle. But now, Jesus has appeared in public again. And where else but Bethany, the scene of his last and great sign. Now, unsurprisingly then, when he turns up in Bethany, a dinner is given in his honour. And the formerly dead man, Lazarus, is right there reclining at the table with Jesus. 
And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are there as well. And then Mary does something incredibly extravagant. Have a look there at John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary took about 500 mils, half a litre, of very expensive perfume. One of the commentators uh, explains to us why this was so expensive, this perfume. He says, nard is an oil extracted from the root and spike of the nard plant grown in India. So its purity, it was pure nard, its quantity, half a litre is quite a lot, and its origin all the way from India account for its appalling cost. Well, how appalling was the cost? Well, as Judas Iscariot, the infamous disciple of Jesus who would betray him later, points out in verse 5, this half a litre of perfume was worth 300 denarii. Well, given that a denarius was about a day's wage for a labourer, it worked out to be a year's wages. So try to put that into today's money. A year's wage for a low-level worker. Half a, mil, half a litre worth about, what, 25k? $30,000 in 500 mils. That's a pretty expensive bottle of perfume. And Mary takes this incredibly expensive bottle and she pours out this liquid gold onto Jesus' feet. And then she adds embarrassing indiscretion to her appalling extravagance because she lets down her hair and bends over close to Jesus' feet and wipes the perfume off his feet with the locks of her hair. It's an act of such extravagance, such intimacy, such devotion and love. Certainly others who were there at the time found it too much to bear. Judas Iscariot, who was the treasurer for Jesus' group of disciples, he objects, verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? And then John comments, maybe with the wisdom of hindsight, he said this, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Now, even if Judas, frankly, was a thief and he had completely ulterior motives, you'd think that his point was fairly reasonable. I mean, $30,000, you know, that buys a lot of meals and blankets for the homeless, doesn't it? You could go a long way to helping the poor with that wealth. And using your wealth to assist the poor was something that Jesus was known to advocate so Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says to the rich young man who wants to know what, I, what should I do with my life, Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So selling your possessions and giving the money to the poor was the way to accrue treasure in heaven, according to Jesus. It was Jesus' own command. This is what you ought to do. And yet here Mary has just spent $30,000 on his feet. Why doesn't Jesus rebuke her? 
Well, Jesus refuses to accuse her of any wrongdoing. In fact, he actually commends what she's done as entirely appropriate and as having greater significance than maybe any of them knew. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. See, Mary probably intended it just as a costly expression of her devotion. But Jesus sees in it something even more. See, it was common practice in those days for corpses to be wrapped with perfume and spices at death to cover over the stench from decaying flesh. At Jesus' own death, as we'll read later on in John chapter 19, Nicodemus brings a hundred times the quantity that Mary poured out. He brings a hundred times that quantity to wrap Jesus' dead body before it's put into the tomb. Presumably they were less expensive spices than what Mary used. And as we learn in John chapter 19, verses 39 and 40, this was standard Jewish burial custom. So it's not so surprising really, considering that Jesus knows the ordeal that awaits him when he's going to get to Jerusalem in just a few days' time. He knows that he's going to die. And so you can understand how he sees in what Mary does a suitable and appropriate sign, a precursor of his own coming death and burial. He's not saying the poor are not important. On the contrary, he says that we're always to have the poor with us, which means we're to, we will have constant opportunity to be generous towards their needs. But to anoint Jesus in this way, to symbolically mark his death and burial, well, Mary was doing something that was very unique. You might say, well, it still strictly wasn't necessary after Nicodemus brought sufficient spices to wrap Jesus' body in when the time actually came. But it's more than just about taking the opportunity when it was there. What this really is about is who is Jesus? And what's so significant about his death and burial? That's what the pouring out of the perfume signifies, I think. It points to Jesus' identity and the significance of his death. Now, the rest of the chapter will... I think, develop those themes for us. It'll help us to understand more about who Jesus is and the significance of his death. But before we move on to that, I want, you to, I want to ask you a question reflecting on what Mary did. The question I want you to think about today is the title of this talk. And it's, if, if you had the opportunity, what would you give to Jesus? Bearing in mind what Mary did, if you had the opportunity, what would you give to Jesus? And as you reflect on that, I think that reveals that there's actually a prior question, a more fundamental question that you have to answer first. And that is, who is Jesus to you? What you will give him depends on who you think he is. Who is he to you? Well, let's move on to the next episode that John records, which will help us understand why it was so appropriate to give Jesus such an extravagant gift as Mary did. Let's move on to the extraordinary greeting given him by the crowd the next day. We read there in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that was in Jerusalem for the feast, who had been looking expectantly for Jesus, we learn from chapter 11:56, now they hear that Jesus, this great miracle worker, is on his way to Jerusalem from Bethany. And so they head out to meet him carrying palm branches. 
Now, palm branches were a convenient national symbol for Israelites. There are lots of date palms grew around Jerusalem, and apparently, I've not been there, but I'm told they still grow there today. And so the palm had become a nationalistic symbol. And so if you want to see that from other sources, we know that 140 years before, uh, 141 BC, when Simon the Maccabee had freed Jerusalem from the Syrians, the crowds had celebrated with palm branches. Or going to the other side of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, in AD 66 to 70, when Jewish insurgents had minted their own coins in rebellion against Rome, what did they put on those coins? They put pictures of palm branches. It was a convenient nationalistic symbol, sort of a bit like the boxing kangaroo, I guess, for Australians. It sort of says, yes, we're on. This is us taking it to the, all the oppressors and those we want to have victory over. Mind you, it wasn't anything as inconsequential as a sporting contest that was their concern. Their concerns were political and religious. Look what they're shouting in verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, which means save. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, you may not realise there, in part, the crowd is quoting from Psalm 118. Now, that's a psalm of praise to God for delivering the psalmist and his people from their enemies, but it also includes a call to the Lord to, to continue to deliver his people from their enemies. So it's full of rejoicing, but there's also a note of expectant deliverance. And that's what makes it so appropriate for the Israelites. They can say, yes, here's Jesus. We think he's the king of Israel. He's coming now to Jerusalem. We're rejoicing in that fact and we're expecting a deliverance from God here, that he will free us from the Roman occupiers. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem and they, they acclaim him as the king, what does Jesus do? Does he resist their acclamation? Does he say, no, you've got it wrong? No, he doesn't. He accepts what they say. Yes, he is the king of Israel. But he does something that's a bit unusual. I think what he does here is he, maybe subtly, they didn't understand it at the time, but he's redirecting their expectations. Look what we read there in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And then John writes for us, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. By grabbing a donkey to sit on, Jesus is fulfilling the vision of Zechariah 9, 9 to 10, where Israel's king comes to Jerusalem victorious and triumphant, but humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you read there in Zechariah 9 that this king will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. So I think Jesus is making a point here about the nature of his reign as king. He's not coming on a war horse. He's coming peacefully, gently, humbly on a donkey, proclaiming peace to the nations. He will do battle with Israel's enemies. He will be triumphant and victorious. But the enemies with which he will do battle are not enemies of flesh and blood. They're the spiritual powers of sin and death and Satan. 
So as Jesus will say later to Pilate in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus enters Jerusalem to the loud rejoicing and acclamation of the people. And I just want to pause again and think, if you had the opportunity, what would you give to Jesus? Mary gave him this incredibly extravagant perfume. The crowd from Jerusalem, they give to Jesus praise, acclamation. But mostly I think it's probably prompted by not really understanding who Jesus is, prompted more by curiosity. That's what we're told there. If you look there in verse 18 and 19, it was also because they heard that he had performed this sign of raising Lazarus that the crowd went to meet him. And the Pharisees then said to one another, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They give Jesus their attention, their praise, but it's more like when a superstar or the Queen or a president comes to Sydney. I mean, you might go out there when you know, the Australian cricket team come back from maybe winning the Ashes and you might say, yeah, I'm going to join the ticket take parade and I'll, I'll clap and I'll, I'll scream and you might not actually be interested in cricket at all. It's just, hey, this looks like a pretty good gig. Let's go and be part of this. Or the Queen or a president comes through town and you go, really, just for a squiz, a bit of a gawk. And I think that's probably what was motivating these people. The great Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the tomb, he's coming, let's go out and meet him and we join in. Yeah, hey, yeah, King of Israel, that sounds pretty good. But really it's prompted more by curiosity than by genuine faith or even comprehension of who he is, what he would do. But the climax of this series of events isn't actually Mary with her gift. It's not even the acclamation of the crowd. The climax, I think, for Jesus is the inquiry of some eager Greeks. The eager Greeks. Look at verses 20 to 23. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, at a casual glance, you might miss the significance of Jesus' comment that the hour has come. But if you've been reading right through John's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' comment here is like the countdown for the launch of the space shuttle. I mean, I don't know what number they start counting down from, but when you get down to three, two, one, zero, well, Jesus is saying we're at zero hour. This is the point of ignition. This is the point that we've all been waiting for. The hour has come. So right through this book of John's Gospel, you can see that the hour had not yet come. For instance, back in chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, Jesus says to his mother, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Or chapter 7, verse 30, when Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, they try to seize him. But John tells us, no one laid hands on him because Jesus' hour had not yet come. Or again, in chapter 8, verse 20, again, teaching in the temple courts. We're told Jesus spoke these words while he's teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. All the way through, not, not yet, not yet, not yet. And now these Greeks, these eager Greeks come to see Jesus and they, Jesus just hears, doesn't even speak to them. 
He's just here. They want to speak with you, Jesus. They want to see you, meet you, interview you. And Jesus says, the hour has come. What's so significant about these eager Greeks? How does that tell Jesus that the hour is now here? Well, the key point is in their identity. They're Greek. That is, they're from the Greek-speaking Gentile world. They're not Jews, these people. They're God-fearers, yes, but they've come up to the festival, but they're not Jews. They're Gentiles who are seeking out Jesus. So to understand why that's so significant, you need to have in your mind, as no doubt Jesus had in his, because he knows the Old Testament, you need to have the big picture of God's plan of salvation in mind, the big plan of redemption. Now, those of you who are just at EU's recent annual conference may remember we spent a whole evening on Wednesday night thinking about God's great plan of redemption. So you're going to be pretty grumpy maybe about what I'm about to do right now. I'm going to compact it all into two bite-sized chunks and take about three minutes. Really, there's two things you need to bear in mind about God's great plan of redemption. First is this. God's plan was always to bless all the families of the earth, every nation. That was always his plan. And he was going to do it through Abraham and the people of Israel who would come from Abraham. So you can see that back in Genesis chapter 12 with God's promise to Abraham that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of what we call salvation history or the history of God's dealings with the world through his people, it's the outworking and fulfilment of that promise to bless all the nations of the earth. But the second thing you need to bear in mind is that God's promise to bless all the families of the earth was going to be achieved through the servant of the Lord, as it's called in the book of Isaiah. So we come here to a passage that we've seen before as we've looked at John's Gospel, Isaiah 49 verse 6, which is a, a verse that's worth writing down and, and knowing well. Isaiah 49 6. The Lord says there, to this servant of the Lord. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We've seen earlier in our walk through John's Gospel that this figure of the suffering servant in Isaiah is one of those key Old Testament shadows of whom Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate fulfilment. And from the Old Testament's revealed to us that God's plan of international salvation finds completion in the salvation of Gentiles through the work of this servant. And so when these eager Greeks come to Jesus and say, we want to meet with you and talk with you, Jesus sees that as a sign that now, the moment has come. Now is the moment of salvation. Well, what's, is a, uh, what, what is about to happen? Have a look what he says there in verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason that I have come to this hour. You would think, see, at the launch of a space shuttle, everyone would be pretty excited. If you ever see it on you know, news or tell you, people are cheering, yeah, it's up. Jesus, the one on whom all these plans focus, when he says, the whole reason I'm here as God incarnate is for this moment, and he has a long face. My heart is troubled. 
And it's made even more perplexing when you realise that what does this hour actually involve? He says there, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment of his glorification and he's got a long face. How come? Why the long face, Jesus? Well, to understand that, you've got to understand what glorification was going to mean for Jesus. So let's move from the eager Greeks to Jesus' reflections on entering glory. Entering glory. We come here in our passage to a key juncture in John's account of Jesus' life and his ministry and his death and resurrection. I think this next little section, verse 22 through to 36, helps set the framework for what will follow in the rest of the book. So if you want to understand the significance of the events that are going to happen from chapter 13 onwards, you need to have this little section of chapter 12 in mind. It helps you understand the meaning of these events that John will narrate. It'll help us understand, in particular, what it means for the Son of Man, Jesus himself, to be glorified. So there's five things that we learn here about glorification of the Son of Man. Five points. First point, the glorification of the Son of Man means his death. Glorification will mean his death. So look at what Jesus says there in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is, through Jesus' own death, he will bring life or fruit to many. Jesus talked about this many times in different ways. He said, I'm the bread of life who's come down from heaven to give life to others. I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep that they might live. Or even in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, who isn't a person who has faith in Jesus, he unknowingly prophesies correctly about what Jesus' death would achieve when he says there in chapter 11, it's better for one man to die, that is Jesus, than for the whole nation to perish. And that explains Jesus' troubled heart. That explains his long face. He knows that glorification is going to mean his death. Not merely physical death. He knows that he is to die as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. That means that he is going to face the just wrath and fury of God against human sin and rebellion. That's what his death would entail. Because he's going to go to his death as Israel's and humanity's representative, as their substitute. And so it's no wonder, given the prospect of facing the fury of God against sin, that yes, his heart is troubled. Yet for our sakes, for the glory of his Father, he goes there. He doesn't shrink back. See, that's why we can see glory when we look at the cross. We see the glorious humility of God in the person of his son, bearing our guilt and our shame and our penalty. We see the glorious love of God in sending his son to save the world who was in rebellion against him. You see the glorious obedience of the son in going to death according to his father's wishes for our sakes. And it's just worth pointing out here that Jesus himself, even as he talks about his glorification will mean his own death, he sets that up as the paradigm, the pattern, for everyone who would follow him 
for every Christian disciple, it will mean the same thing, that glory will come through real suffering. He says there in verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. So that's the first point. Glorification will mean Jesus' death. Secondly, glorification means judgment on the world. Verse 31, Jesus continues, Now is the judgment of this world. I think what Jesus is saying here, that in the events that are about to unfold, in particular in his wrongful death, at the hands of unrepentant Jews and pagan Gentiles, that is the event that seals the condemnation of sinful humanity. What I mean is this. What is the supreme act of defiance against God? What is the height of human wickedness? Surely it will be killing God in flesh. Surely it will be killing God the Son. And it's in that supreme act of defiance and rebellion that the sinful world reveals its black, sin-stained heart. If you like, it's the culminating, incriminating piece of evidence when humanity is on trial. And so in that sense, by that very act, that sinful, terribly wicked act, humanity casts judgment on itself. It, It condemns itself. And as Jesus said back in chapter 3.18, which I think is a helpful verse that maybe explains what's going on here. He says, Those who believe in the Son are not condemned or judged, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, unbelief in Jesus, which is seen climactically in crucifying him, that reveals one's condemned status. You've just refused to believe in the one God has sent. So when you look at the death of Jesus on the cross, you can see the glorious love of God for us. But it also reveals the world's just condemnation by God, just how wicked humanity is. This is what we do to his son. makes you think about our question again, doesn't it? Like, if you had the opportunity... What would you give to Jesus? See, God gave to the world his son. And the world gives to God the son crucifixion. If you had the opportunity, what would you give to Jesus? Well, third point here. Glorification means the defeat of Satan. Again, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. The consistent testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus' death and resurrection represent a cosmic spiritual victory over the world's ultimate enemies, the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of evil, of darkness, of sin and of Satan himself. That's the real redemption that God wins for those who follow his son Jesus, from slavery to those powers, to sin, death and Satan. One person put it this way, the lifting up of Jesus, God's son, onto the cross, his lifting up was his enthronement in glory. At the same time, it was the dethroning of the prince of this world. 
It was the decisive and real defeat of Satan, even if we're still all awaiting his final destruction at Jesus' return. But the real and decisive victory was won when Jesus was lifted up. Fourth point, glorification means the drawing of all people to Jesus. This is where we started with the eager Greeks. Here's the fulfilment of God's promises from Genesis and Isaiah to remove the nationalistic boundaries that surrounded God's people and realise the truly international character of God's people through faith in his Son. That's what Jesus says there, verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, including those eager Greeks who want to see me now. But it's only after I've been glorified, after I've been lifted up, that yes, then all people will be drawn to me. Fifth and last point, glorification means urgent appeal. Jesus doesn't just finish with a bit of a lecture on his glorification. He finishes with an appeal. Verses 35 and 36. He says to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. But while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. And then we read, after Jesus had said this, he departed and hid from them. Jesus ends understanding that his glorification means it's time to make an appeal to all people to again put their faith, their trust in him, that they might become children of light. But Jesus' appeal doesn't meet with the response that you'd sort of hope for. I mean, if you were there, imagine you were in that crowd. You come up to Jerusalem for the festival. You've heard about this Jesus character who'd raised Lazarus from the dead. You talked to multiple people there in Jerusalem who'd been there at the moment and now you hear he's on his way. You rush out to meet him, to talk with him. You meet many people who've seen his miracles. You've no doubt they truly occurred. You'd think you'd put your trust in him. You'd think that maybe you might just think he is who he says he is. But look what we read in verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. How come? Why not? Well, let's read on, verse 38. This was to fulfil the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So John comments here that the fact that people didn't believe fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah regarding this suffering servant. He quotes Isaiah chapter 53. That though Jesus would be exalted, though the, as the servant of the Lord he would die for the sins of the people, yet he was rejected. His message would not be believed. The work of the Lord in and through him, it would not be perceived even by those who were there seeing it with their eyes. Why not? Well, the truth there in verse 41 and verse 40, is that God had hardened their hearts. Start there in verse 41. 
John comments that whether Isaiah knew it or not, what Isaiah saw when he had a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, what he saw was the glory of the Lord, which is the glory of Jesus. If you go back and read Isaiah 6, you'll see that Isaiah is confronted by this vision of uh, the Lord in his glory and the seraph saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And John's comment is, what Isaiah saw there was the glory of Jesus. Because Jesus is the glory of God the Father. And what Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 6 is that he spoke about the reaction to Jesus in Jesus' own day. He was also speaking about the reaction of people to the Lord in his day as well. But under the power of the Spirit, he prophesied about what would happen when God came amongst his people in the person of Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord reveals himself as the true king and God amidst his people. And it's a people who are engaged in idolatry. You need to do a little cross-reference to work there. If you look in 2 Kings 15 verse 4 and 2 Kings 15 verse 35, what you'll see there is in the day that Isaiah sees this vision, the people are engaged in idolatry. And so the Lord reveals himself, I'm the true king, I am the true God, even though my people are off worshipping false gods. And so what does God do at that point? He hardens the hearts of his people so that they might go into exile. Isaiah 6 verse 11 and 12. Even though at that time there will be a holy seed from which God's people again will sprout. That's Isaiah 6 verse 13. And when the time of exile is over, then God will soften their hearts. And he will pour out his spirit on people, all the promises of the new covenant. And there will be forgiveness of their sins. And they will want to follow the Lord. But that's only when the exile is over. Until the exile is over, until the time of their punishment is completed, the Lord hardens their hearts. So what's John saying here? John is saying, with the wisdom that the Lord gave him, the Jesus contemporaries, the people who were with him that day, God had hardened their heart because the exile was not yet over. When was the exile going to be over? And when will God soften their hearts and pour out his spirit and draw all nations to himself? When would that happen? When Jesus is glorified. That's when the spirit's poured out. That's when forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. You can look about that a bit later in the last couple of chapters of John's Gospel. Now, this is not saying that there's no possibility of eternal life for people who were there with Jesus in those days. John's Gospel as a whole telegraphs the availability of life, this new covenant life through faith in God's Son to all the people, even, even here. But what's happening at the time is that God has hardened the hearts of his people as a nation so yes, that they will crucify the Lord of glory. They will see him glorified. And then the new era of the new covenant, all the blessings that flow from that, then they will be open to people of all nations. Well, Jesus finishes off the chapter with a final appeal. And I guess if you wanted to take people to one part of all of John's Gospel that summarised who Jesus is and his relationship with his Heavenly Father... And why it matters how you respond to him, you could go to these last verses of John chapter 12, John 12, 44 to 50. It really does summarise Jesus' teaching, not just his teaching, 
but his identity and why his teaching matters. You could take people there, that would be a very helpful place to go. But I want to finish by coming back to our question. If you had the opportunity, what would you give Jesus? Now, in Australia, we love to give. Uh, I can say that from personal experience. I've been on the receiving end of many people's generosity at different times in my life. And I've even been known to give generously to people. So, yeah, we love to give. But I'm not talking personally. I'm actually talking statistically. So here's a little exercise for you. Just a, a bit of guesswork. In December last year, December 05, how much money do you reckon us in Australia spent on Christmas? So I'm talking about retail spending, cash and credit. Just guess, unless you were here earlier this week and heard me say it. How, how much money, just guess, yell it out, how much do you reckon we would have spent? Something. $10 million. The right answer is $22 billion. In December last year, we spent $22 billion on gifts. Now, I reckon that means that you and I must have had a pretty good Christmas. Because statistically, it means that you had $1,000 spent on you last Christmas. Now, if you didn't, maybe you've got some people you need to go and talk to. Because <laughs> they spent it somewhere. We must love to give in this country. We must. Even if we did it out of duty, we're committed to giving, right? If Jesus was on your Christmas list, what would you give him? If you had the opportunity, what would you give Jesus? And you might say, well, thank goodness it's just an academic question. I don't have the opportunity. Friend, you do. You do have the opportunity. In fact, Jesus is asking you for something. He's asking for the most extravagant gift of all, not perfume. Not even just your curious adulation or admiration. Jesus is asking for your life. He's asking you to trust him with everything. He's asking for you to believe in him which means your heart, your mind, your soul. He's asking for you to love him. If you had the opportunity, you do have the opportunity. What will you give to Jesus? Verse 36, Jesus said, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you that you indeed gave your very Son to this world, that through his death and resurrection we might live. We just want to praise and thank you for your grace and generosity and boundless love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you might so work in us by your word and through your spirit that we might respond to you with faith and love and obedience, that we might believe in your Son and so have life eternal. We ask this, Father, for Jesus' sake, for his glory, and to please you in everything we do. Amen.